1: Welcome to a special Saturday night broadcast of Nightlight Part 2. So far uh, this month, Reverend Bill McDonald gave us a seasonal uh, uplifting story and his metaphysical observations from his travels throughout India. Michael Falzarana gave us the sounds of a Grateful Dead Christmas last week. Uh, tonight we'll be looking at how the ancients held ceremonies at the same at the same uh, time of the year, long before the sudden appearance of steel monoliths. Uh, Dennis Stone, owner of America's Stonehenge, is our guest to give us updates about his property and new insights into America's ancient ceremonial landscape. You can learn more about this enigmatic archaeological site by going to StonehengeUSA.com. Hi, Dennis. How are you?
2: Well, good evening, Mark. Uh, Doing pretty well. I'm excited to be on your show tonight.
1: Glad you're here. Um, now let's um, start off with you know, we're getting pretty close to um, you know the winter solstice, which is this Monday. Um, with the Uh, You know, people will be able to visit uh, uh, Monday. But it's also a 50th anniversary for your family's uh, first observation of the winter solstice uh, sunrise. Uh, can, Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and what it meant to you?
2: Well, yeah. um, Well, it's been part of my family pretty much my whole life, and um, uh, it is a real special one. Yeah, it's the 50th anniversary. Um, It's hard to believe it was 1970 when you first witnessed the first astronomical event, uh, whether it was a sunrise or set, moonrise or set, uh, at America's Stonehenge. And so it happened to be the winter solstice, and it was the first avenue that we started clearing back in the mid-1960s. And by nineteen sixty seven the avenue was actually opened up to the horizon so you could actually watch the sunset over a monolith. And the monolith is located about seven hundred feet from the uh, what we call the astronomical viewing center. And um unfortunately with New England weather, um it changes all the time and we it's not always predictable. Um and so in sixty seven, eight, and nine it was cloudy, I guess. So although we tried to watch it and get, you know, t- so you could see it visually and witness it, uh it didn't really cooperate until nineteen seventy. And um so December, I believe twentieth to twenty first, nineteen seventy, uh my my dad and myself and a neighbor of ours up in Derry, New Hampshire where we lived at the time, uh he was in high school with me and a and a neighbor. Uh we all came down and we met up with our uh manager and his name was Warren Martell. And um, Warren um, worked at our place for several years, and he was very instrumental in uh, opening up the first alignment, and actually uh, doing some calculations uh, during around 68, uh, 67, 68, 69. And by then he had graduated from college, he got married, and he ended up in the nuclear industry. And um, but he came, he was home in 1970, and uh, we met up at his parents' home, and uh, there was about a foot of snow on the ground, uh, about a little bit more than we have right now, as a matter of fact. And so it's about a half a mile walk up the hill through the woods from his house. And uh, the uh, entrance that we use now for our visitor center, um, and we have used actually since 1958, wasn't plowed. It was just uh, all full of snow and snow bankings and everything, so he couldn't access it that way. So we met up at his house uh, that afternoon. We found he had a uh, he had built a wooden snowmobile, actually, out of pots from another snowmobile. So it was a wooden snowmobile, actually. I've never seen anything like it. But he was very talented and very creative, and the thing worked. And he actually broke the trail, so the half a mile trail it was easier to walk behind the snowmobile. And so it take probably about thirty minutes or so to get up on top of the hill. And it was partly cloudy that day. We are hoping it wouldn't cloud in, you know, and that would be it again for another year. You know, we'd have to wait to 1971. But we get up there, and it's very, very cold. And uh, we get up there, and again, it was mostly uh, sunny with clouds. And as we waited and watched, the sun starting to lure over that direction through the avenue towards the uh, winter solstice monolith. Um, the the clouds are just a couple of them, and it was actually kind of nice because they're, you know, they made for a really beautiful, uh, you know. Um, kind of a sky, and as the sun set, it went right through the clouds, it kind of opened up, uh, and it sat right on top of the monolith, and my dad uh, had his camera, and he took slides, actually, he took a whole bunch of slides, just kept, you know, shooting them, and uh, so we held the whole sequence for several minutes, of so the sun setting over that monolith, and we kind of held our breath and everything, and we got a chill, not just from the cold, but we we thought perhaps we were the first people to see that since maybe the original you know, inhabitants, the people that built the site, which could have been thousands of years ago. And uh, once we saw that, we were very, very sure that that was the purpose of these monoliths, which were located several hundred feet and around the hilltop. And uh, although people like Mr. Goodwin, uh, the first researcher in 1937, when he began work, was aware of these stones, they didn't really do anything with them because they're way out in the middle of the woods. Uh, They were concentrating on the main site, and that was true for a couple of decades. And again, it was in the 1960s. Uh, Stonehenge, Decoded, A book by um, Gerald Hopkins came out, and he was at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, originally from England. And he wrote that book, um, and it came out, I think the, uh, he had a paper that came out in 63, I think, uh, and the book was kind of based on that, and that came out in 65. And the book became very popular. CBS uh, TV actually picked up on that and made a documentary that year in 1960 called the mystery of Stonehenge. I believe I've seen it twice I've seen the show twice once live. And then we saw it at a library back in the 1970s when it was about 10 years old. Uh, And so um, they researchers like my dad and a group called the New England Antiquities Research Association had very, very interested because of that book and the uh, CBS special that perhaps these stones out there had a meaning and maybe they were aligned with the sun, moon and stars. And so uh fifty five years ago is when we actually began the research, and uh this this uh coming uh, solstice will be uh celebrating the fiftieth anniversary, and it so happens it's a grand conjunction everybody's talking about so it's kind of a really cool one too on top of that yeah so i mean it's it's kind of neat it's a big anniversary uh you know I wish we had all the original people that worked on that still here with us you know to uh to be with us, and I guess in a way they will be in spirit. But I'm um, hoping that the uh, weather is good. I think the morning looks cloudy. And so, um, but the afternoon looks like the sun will start popping out, so we can only hope it's as nice as it was in 1970. And uh, I can't believe it's been 50 years. That's a half a century. I just, it seems like it may be, you know, 10 or 20 years ago we did that, you know, not a, not a half a century ago. So we're all excited about it. We'll be there after the sunset and trying to watch the Grand Conjunction, and then uh you know, uh, and hopefully get some really nice photographs. We're thinking of doing it live, too, live stream it. But I'm not sure we're going to be able to do that. I know I think Stonehenge and I believe Newgrange uh, in Ireland, which have been mm-hmm. to both, will be doing a live streaming. And I think they have for a while. I think it should be kind of a neat one this year, too. You know, if the weather cooperates over there, too, you know, it should be pretty cool. So we might try to do that. something we want to do. Um, and if we don't get to it this year, we'll try to do it next year. Um, and then people can watch it anywhere in the world, you know, um, and hopefully the weather works, you know.
3: <laughs> okay.
2: Well, um,
1: so, sounds like a a great day out for, uh, you know, the family to be there on Monday, but um, you know, right as we were getting
4: uh,
1: all set, set up to uh, do the show, we had a caller and I, I you know you, you know Dennis you laid the foundations for uh you know a lot, a lot of what we'll be discussing uh tonight but uh you know Barbara can can we bring our caller uh Jay from Canada on and uh he he had a question and uh you know we're glad to get um his uh you know, qu- question answered. Hi, hi Jay.
4: Okay. Hi, yeah, Thanks Okay. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, g- uh, glad you're here.
1: Jay, um, g- hey, J- J, this is Dennis. Dennis, uh, this is
2: Jay. Hi. Good evening, hey, Jay. There. How you doing? Pretty good at mm. myself. I'm doing pretty good. Uh, thank you for calling in for this evening.
4: Yeah, you're welcome. I just wonder, we have a, like a, a Canadian Stonehenge, and it's actually in a province where I live, and it's called... Uh, uh, majorville medicine wheel. And oh, it's a yeah. long and yeah. it's, it's a long I went to actually visited about ten years ago and I had a really amazing spiritual experience there. And I did you know, this, this the stone this I uh, well, like the Canadian Stonehenge is actually in line with Stonehenge in um lat I think latitude or longitude. Latitude probably or longitude in, in line with Stonehenge. Yeah. yeah. Along with it lines with uh the Stonehenge in uh in England, so which is really interesting. So um, my question is, is regarding
3: um,
4: those wheels or the wheel that you're you're talking about, the American Stone Age. Um, was there kind of like these? Did it foresee some events like what's happening on Monday to happen? Did you see that show up? And I uh, just wondered what is the significance of that uh, day, uh, the 21st of this year, because it's a, it's a pretty, pretty big event, I think, this time around.
2: Uh, it is, yeah. Yeah, because the shortest day of the year, you'll, you know, and the, in the day, daylight will become longer after that and all that. Um, but, um, yeah, it's a big event here, summer solstice, as far as people coming. is You know, the weather's uh, warmer and everything, and that's a big one, too, six months later. I have been to the uh, Bighorn Medicine Wheel out in uh, Sheridan, Wyoming, and I believe yeah. the, there's a couple of... Saskatchewan, I believe, uh, maybe a dozen or that's probably an old number. They may have found more since then, but I know there are a number of them. They're pretty amazing. Like the one in Sheridan has 28 spokes, 28 days of the, you know, the uh, month and it has, I think, Carnes with three different star alignments. And uh, I think it was about 10,000 foot elevation. So it was more of a summer solstice place. And by spring and fall, or it became, you know, it snows up there, you know, most of the year. So it's more of a summer activity. And I think it was a crossing of a, a mig- migratory crossing of animals to there um, and my dad and my wife and my son at the time he was pretty young we went up there and saw that and we were pretty impressed by that and I was aware of some of the ones up in Canada I've been into uh, I've been up into Calgary and Edmonton and over towards British Columbia but we didn't get the opportunity to visit any of the medicine wheels up there I've seen a few photographs of them and uh, okay. they're pretty pretty amazing most Americans you know don't know about these things and they are pretty amazing but ours, uh, ours has the uh, 51 alignments with the sun, the moon, and stars. We surveyed the site from 1973 to 1977 by a professional survey team. It was uh, Beverly Pearson and Associates. He was the president, I believe, of the New England Surveys Association at the time. His son, Charlie, just retired from surveys, so it's a you know family thing, you know. And uh, that information was sent to the Harvard-Smithsonian Center in 77. We got the results back in 78, and they said the alignments would work about 1800 B.C., plus or minus so many years. But Mm -hmm. uh, the four quarter days, summer, winter, spring, and fall, and then we have the cross quarter days, and then we have the uh, 18 and a half year lunar cycles. And I know the uh, Sheridan uh, medicine wheel actually has helical uh, star rising. So you'd see the star on a certain day of the year and it forecasts the summer solstice coming. Those are pretty cool. We have 24 star alignments, and that's one of the surprises in 1978 from that report. We did know we had a true north alignment with Polaris 4,000 years ago due to precession. It was a star called Thuban in the constellation of Draco. But, um, you know, we had a gentleman from Penn State University. He was a doctor of archaeoastronomy. He joined us in 97. Unfortunately, he died suddenly in 2001, not just a couple of years after retirement, which is, a you know, for us it was really sad to lose a friend like that, plus the research. But he actually worked on those uh twenty three well there's twenty four star alignments we knew about one. So he worked on the other twenty three alignments, you know, with the different stars, including mm-hmm. Sirius, El and Rigel. And um <clears throat> we're still doing that work today. So um but that's basically what our site is, you know, and I would love to get up into your area and see some of the medicine wheels up there. I've seen there's a few photographs of them.
4: <clears throat> yeah, I got lots of photographs of it and it's really quite a spiritual experience <clears throat> there. So um definitely, yeah. So mm-hmm what about the the um, significance of this this maybe I'm just being your stealing your thunder, but is it is it really a significance to this this solstice that's coming up? Well, well it's,
2: it's our fiftieth anniversary for one thing, you know it's, as I, I don't know if you heard the show earlier. Um we started opening up the avenues in the mid 60s, and by 1967, that particular alignment was cleared so you could actually watch the sun set on the horizon. We had to clear out about 800 feet of trees. Um, and in 1970, it was the first year that the weather cooperated. So, it was, you know, this is going to be our 50th anniversary, and then we had the grand conjunction of the uh, Saturn and Jupiter right after that in the evening, so people will be watching that, too. It just, it'll just look pretty neat, you know. But the significance is it's the first alignment that we have of the 51 that we actually watched, you know. And okay. uh, my dad died about 11 years ago. Uh, just about 11 years ago he died. So um, we found things since then. Uh, we found about 14 serpentine walls. We think they're inspired by the constellation Draco. These walls look like a serpent. They have a head, a body, and a tail. And they're finding them all the way from here throughout New England, New York, Uh, Connecticut has about 400 of them, 30 feet up to uh, 300 feet in Connecticut. Our longest one might be 2,550 feet, which is twice as long as the Great Serpent Mount in Ohio, which is pretty spectacular. And uh, they go right out to California, right out to Mount Shasta. There are a couple in Canada. I don't have the locations, but I've had radio shows with Richard Hyatt out of Hamilton, Ontario, and we talked about Mm -hmm. a couple of of the serpents that are, I think, I used to fly for American Airlines, I used to go to Toronto, so somewhere... Up near Peterborough, Ontario, but a little bit I think east of there is where the one of the serpent um, effigy uh, structures is, you know. So but uh, we'll find the same kind of stonework right across the nation actually. Uh, hmm. same shaped walls, serpentine walls, windows in the walls, and a lot of it's astronomical. So <clears throat> we think hmm. it is anyway. Yeah, that's Yeah, that's, best
4: the, guess. that's even yeah. stone uh, the major road medicine wheel too. Is that the, um, there's some placements of rocks where they can actually use almost like a um, like a rifle guidance in a way and use rocks to look at different other rocks and align what's going on in the sky too. is really interesting mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Like a
2: gun sight. Like a gun sight. Yeah, at, gun you sight, have a yeah.
4: Foresight, yeah. foresight and a back sight.
2: Some of our stones are actually notched with a V shape, almost like a gun. You know. And yeah. you look through that, the V, and you're looking at a monolith, you know, several hundred feet away, and then you're looking at your object, whether it's a star, or the moon, or the sun, you know. And um, But, European, you know, there's a lot of European sites like that uh, up in Scotland and actually throughout the British Isles and into France. I've been all over that area. There are 50,000 megalithic sites, and many of them have those uh, those kind of gun sites, you know, and some of them are located a couple of miles distance. So they have a very accurate alignment, you know.
4: Yeah, Hours are so that's amazing. The,
2: yeah. Yeah, the further the distance between the foresight and backsight. our biggest serpentine wall starts at a structure called the watch house. And that is a sophisticated structure. It has an illumination effect inside of it that we found is on the equinox. The light and shadow actually through doorway, like New Grange, Maryland, will go in and illuminate a quartzite stone. We just found that out last spring by watching it, <laughs> predicted by an app on, on a phone called a um, uh, the Sunseeker app on the phone by a friend from Texas, and she was up here before that. She goes, if you watch on the Equinox, you're going to probably see an illumination. And she gave me about the time, around 9 o'clock. And last spring, we actually watched it, we got it on YouTube. We had a 30-minute, it's cut down by time-lapse to 30 seconds. But that stone, the boulder that's part of that structure, looks like a serpent's head. And we have LiDAR of it, the latest, you know, LiDAR, handheld LiDAR. And that is amazing technology. And we've had about 15 acres of the 110-acre site already lidar It's very work-intensive. Um, the guy walks around with the handheld lidar, and then you have to process all the data. <clears throat> it's about 600 hours he's done just on the 15 acres. But this serpentine wall starts at that boulder, and then it undulates behind it. The head is actually a lunar minor alignment, which will be in 2032, the next lunar may, minor standstills. Uh, when I say the illumination goes right in, it into what could be considered a womb. You know, you get the sun, and then you have the rays and then the fertilization of the egg, kind of like Newgrange. The Chaco Canyon does that out in um, New Mexico over there last year. And okay. several other different sites do that same kind of thing where, you know, the male, the rays, the fertilization. But the serpent's head is not only a lunar minor, but it's also, um, uh, it's a February 1st cross-quarter day And the first hump behind it, because the wall undulates like the back of a serpent up and down, is November 1st, which is called Samhain Samhain, over in in the old world. But um, Native Americans uh, also celebrated these days, because I went to Mesa Verde a couple of times. We were there last year, as a matter of fact. And they have both the quarter days, you know, summer, winter, spring, and fall, and the Mm cross-quarter days, roughly May Day. August 1st, November 1st, and February 1st, which we have at our site. So Native Americans were doing this. And um, that wall goes around and touches every four-site astronomical alignment. I mentioned there's about 51. comes back in front of itself after 2,550 feet, does another hump, which we've seen. I was here back when I was a baby in 1955, but we never knew what it meant, you know. But it actually (laughs) goes to a 90-degree twist with a pointed tail. And I don't know if Mark has that image of, of that LIDAR, Of that head, but you look at it and like, oh my god, it's a head of a serpent. It looks like it's biting its tail, perhaps, which is an Ouroboros, you know, which means the circle of life. Ancient Egyptians, ancient uh, Greeks, there's jewelry made with that, there's artwork with that, and uh, so it's an ancient uh, symbol. And uh, but it actually encircles the entire hilltop and it touches every astronomical alignment. And then, like I said, it undulates in front of the. It's right by its mouth, and then it looks like it's biting its tail. And then it has a pointed, has a pointed tail. So, um, so it's kind of a, you know, it's, we just discovered all that in the last four years as far as the serpentine wells. And I think we have 14 of them. Some are linear, some are rectilinear, and some are curved. You know, beautiful sweeping curves to them, unlike farmer, farmers' wall, what we call agricultural wells in New England. You know, which makes sense. You know, they see boundaries, field clearings, and stock fences. You know, and they're usually pretty linear, with some exceptions. But these walls don't do that. And these walls, a lot of them have windows, beautiful, lintel windows. And we're discovering that in Vermont. We're finding that going all the way up to Colorado, these same kind of features. Uh, Alabama has them. They call them rattlesnake walls. And, um, yeah, so, they, you know, so they, it's something more widespread than just our site or the northeast, um, you know, right across the nation. Indiana has one that looks like one of our curved ones, shaped like the letter S. And it's in the White River in Mountain State Park. I got a picture from 100 years ago. It's right in the middle of the river, this beautiful serpentine snake crossing. Again, it could be Draco, the constellation that inspired these people. But, you know, since we can't talk to them, we can only speculate, I think, you know. It,
1: Jay, <laughs> it is, is there a date on the Majorville medicine wheel? It is, yeah, do you know the diameter of this wheel? It's, the, the, uh, the reason why I was asking is Dennis uh, has talked about the uh, patterns of you know these stone walls and get some of the chevron shapes and uh, you know going uphill and uh, you know just there, there seems to be a uh, pattern across North America. Uh, you know, is, are we? seeing something similar in Canada?
4: I'm not sure. I'm not sure, if sure because, the yeah, the 15th uh, yeah, ones is that yeah, I don't I've been to the out matter, out and they don't like Mound. And there are yeah, any high uh, locations or locations, location. so, though, The die down uh, around uh, the, main, uh, the mountain.
1: mountain.
2: Uh, 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 I mean, mountain is Hey, We I'm have an echo this. again. Oh, you got an echo. Oh, <laughs> I just said one I'm aware of is up in Peterborough. You know, in um, uh, Richard Syatt was. I believe it was a couple of years ago. I did a show, and he was familiar with that. And um, yeah, the medicine wheels are definitely a different style of construction, you know, but astronomical, definitely. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it, 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 it's just in, interesting, it, uh, like with so, um, the same diameters, uh, 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 like the Newark Earthworks, what was it like uh, 1,054 feet or something? Something like that, and, and you get uh, like the same diameter circle in Chillicothe. It, it, it's just interesting Avery to right? see.
2: Avery? is Aitbury the Great Circle is the same as Aitbury. It looks very similar in style. It, it, right. And, yep. And Avery yeah, you, in England.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You get this same distance.
2: Um,
1: and. Oh, uh, a a very, uh, what what a little, uh, is older than uh, Newark.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny, it could be just a coincidence, but they're similar. uh, I think the diameter is the same, you know. But when you look at the shape of the Jake and Ditch, I suppose it's only, but then the Ditch is in a certain position in relationship to the bank, you know, Uh, and the same. But when you look at pictures of both, it's like, I haven't been to Newark I used to you know. Right, I go to Columbus all the time, but I never got a chance to go over there. But I did go to April, several times in England. But I'd love to get to chill a coffee, and Newark, Yeah, to see that, and again, if you get up to Canada too to see some of the medicine wheels up where Jay is. You know, those are. I've seen the photographs. They look very. They look very very interesting. Definitely.
1: It it's just very interesting to see these the the, the repetition of uh yeah, the same. Uh, yeah, like you know, like we've spoken about on other shows, uh, <laughs> standard unit of measurement, uh, same diameters, uh, similar patterns, you know, like the chevron shapes. It's, it's, it's we don't have a lot of callers uh, from Canada. It, it, it would just be interesting mm-hmm. to get his pers- uh, Jay's perspective on. Um, what he is observing there and if it's uh, the same as it is in uh, the United States.
2: Mm, Yeah, especially standard unit of measure and shapes and designs. But I think it's great that Jay called in because a lot of people aren't aware of it. You know, there are right across Canada, whether it's uh, in Quebec where there's stone structures that are reminiscent of the ones in New England here. You know chambers and structures and cons and standing stuff. And you get out there, you know, to find the medicine wheels, sort of like the uh, the the, uh, the uh, in Sheridan. You know the uh, Big Horn medicine wheel in Sheridan, which you know we visited right. back '92. And uh, you had a drive, you know, from the visitor center. Gosh, it now '92, so almost 20. Well, 28 years ago, my dad went with us on that, and my son was only two, I think. We had to drive like I think 20, 25 miles from the visitor center, and then up this huge hill or mountain, actually a mountain, you know, 10,000 feet. And on the other ridge was an air traffic, air route traffic control center. You know, they had all the, all the antennas up there, the radar antennas. It was so cool. You had this kind of modern, techie thing on one ridge and maybe a mile or two away, you could see it in the distance. It didn't really affect the E. Bighorn medicine wheel. I mean, you know, it wasn't on top of it, you know, and then you've got the Indian medicine wheel, which is, you know, I guess would be in that case, you know, Stone Age for the Native Americans. And it was so cool to see both of these, you know, built by man, but different, different things in different time periods, you know, uh, but it was mm-hmm. really, a, a really in a, its high, like Jay said, it's on a, they're usually up high, I think, and uh, so high that that's only a summer solstice place, you know. Uh, oh. In the spring, winter, and fall, you were probably out of there. You know, even if the climate has changed a little bit since it was built, you know, it's still probably a pretty cold place, except for, the, for two or three months a year. So. Okay.
1: It, <laughs> it, 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 you know, since you were, um, you know, we started the show talking about uh you know the first alignment that uh you know your family saw 50 years ago um it, you know you do have the uh forestry uh pro- project resuming um what uh next week uh, can you tell us a little bit more about you know, um the goal of this project, you know, how it's you know, a little different from you know what your family was doing 50 years ago. Yeah, you know, how's this? Uh, Bene, balancing, <clears throat> uh, you know, t- taking care of the woods a- as well as <sighs> historic preservation. Historic preservation.
2: Yeah, there's a couple of different levels to that, too. You know, you want to thin out the forest, you know, make it healthy. We have talked to, like, University of New Hampshire Forest Extension people have been up, uh, one particular gentleman's been up a number of times. He retired, and then we get another gentleman. And we began discussing actually thinning the forest, also opening up more of the astronomical alignments. Um, that's never been, you know, complete, actually. Uh, fire management uh, have... Um, have uh roads that we can have fire equipment on 10 years ago. This last spring, we had a uh, 15 acres go up on us and, uh, it almost got out of control. So, um, uh, we want to be able to fight a fire in that case, remove a lot of the, uh, the fuel, you know, the, de- the dead stuff. I, I go up there and take firewood out of the hill 110 acres though. You know, I, I don't have that many lifetimes. Um, so we want to thin the forest, make it healthy. We want to create more animal habitats, bluebirds and bats and, you know, uh, Piles of brush for different animals and because of deer population and turkey population. And we have a lot of hawks up there and a lot of bluebirds now, which is nice. And we're starting to see the bats, more bats now. We used to have them. They kind of went down a bit, but they're coming back now, which is nice. Um, you know, and we'll work with the United States, um, U.S., uh, United States uh, Department of Agriculture is working with us, kind of a parallel program. And our licensed forester was actually paid uh, to write a 30-page plan about a species and then all the rest of it. So, we're going to have a more of a, a little bit more of a park like setting um, It'll be thinner woods people will be able to use the trails further out than the trails that we use today. Uh, we'll have more snowshoe trails for sure. We'll have about three or four miles more of snowshoe trails and we'll go to parts of the site that people don't normally, or the hilltop, people don't normally go to. A lot of these quarry areas or these big slabs are quarried by these ancient people. About 33 of them laying all over the hilltop. Some of them are enormous, and they're actually separated from the bedrock, propped up, and we're just starting to find some of these way out, you know, up to 1,000 feet from the main site. And as we mentioned on previous shows, we found the first one in 82, excavated it in 1983, and the state archaeologist, Dr. Gary Hume, oversaw it. Dr. David Stewart Smith, who we lost only four years ago. He was with us for almost 40 years. He was actually really involved with the way the stones are quarried, shaped, transported. And to find out, you know, after 1982 that we had probably 33 more, a lot of these were found in the last couple of years. And these will be more visible to the public, you know. Um, and some of the, uh, the wall patterns that are serpentine and windows in them and all that, we'll have that more open. When it's a thick, thick jungle like it has been, you know, you can go like a couple hundred feet and get lost up there, and we can't have that with our visitors, you know. But when you have it all thinned out, people can see, you know, hundreds and hundreds of feet. We're not so afraid of losing our visitors out in the woods like we have had before. We've had that problem with people actually getting lost out there. Um, we're going to open up the lunar alignments, uh, the lunar major alignments, and that next event um, is 2025, and I believe it's 20. 20- 34. I might have misspoke earlier. It's nine years later that we'll have the lunar miners. So we have the lunar majors coming up just a couple of years, and then around 2034, we'll have the lunar miners. And we're going to have these open um, because you can you can actually, when you're doing an astronomical research, you can actually survey all these different stones, and you can predict, you know, and calculate where the sun and moon and stars rise and set uh, without even seeing it. And you would know it works because you have to have the horizon, so you have to know the, the angle of the horizon that affects the azimuth or where these these um heavenly bodies rise and set, but empirically to watch it like we did in nineteen seventy you know to actually witness it with your eyes is really a big deal, you know, so you want to have both the calculations and all the survey work, but you want to be able to go out there and witness it so twenty twenty five you know we'll be able to go out there hopefully if the weather's good and watch the lunar major standstills north and south, which will be you know, we'll open it up to the public. It should look pretty cool. Those haven't been open. And we've been clearing trees since, you know, like starting around 1965 and 67 is when we had that winter solstice open. So 50 what 55 years we've been working. And we this, uh, this company has amazing equipment that can do probably in a couple of days that would take us a year to cut, you know, like 800 feet of trees. They can go out there. And uh, they can open an avenue out and you'd have it open like probably in an afternoon or a day. you are like, oh, my gosh, the thing's all open, you know, because we know we've done those, you know, and at, at like 65 to 67, I think it took to open up the first alignment a couple of years, you know. Um, so they can move right along and they do make uh, all the wood into different products like lumber. Uh, they make it into uh, firewood and they make it into wood chips. And that goes to the power companies to make electricity. And they also make it into, uh, some of the lumber actually goes up to Canada, believe it or not, to make it into pallets, depending on the grade of wood. So everything is used, and all the scrap I pick up and I burn it in my wood stoves, pretty much. And we're going to build out of some of the branches and stuff some habitat sites. So, you know, concerned about, you know, animals up there and healthy woods and nice Mm -hmm. astronomical alignments. I know at the Great Serpent Mound, they planted trees several decades ago, so you know, to help I guess with erosion and, you know, wind and stuff like that. And those some of those trees I think they're being I think there's cutting recently, but you couldn't see the summer solstice. It was totally blocked. And it was because not of trees that grew naturally, but trees that were planted years ago by people. And we love our woods, but gee whiz, you know, you'd want to see an alignment. You're gonna to have to either remove the trees or you're not gonna see it, you know. So I think that was a a bone of contention at the Great Serpent Mountain in Ohio, which is a really amazing place. But I'd like to, you know, if I was there, I'd like to see the alignment. Maybe they can just thin cut through the trees and you can watch it, you know, and still leave some of the trees here because we don't want to chop them all down for sure, you know. So, um, but make a healthy forest. It's a balance. And it's a balance, yeah. It's a really, yeah, and that's why we brought in a licensed forester. We interviewed a couple of them. And uh, University of New Hampshire Forest Extension Service, you know, they said, yeah, this place is a great candidate for this type of work. Um, and taking care of the hilltop, you know, keeping it green. Making it healthy, make sure you can, you know, don't have as much fuel out there for forest fires and uh, have fire lanes, you know, and and then they can get the equipment out there to fight the next fire if we ever have one. But uh, it is a balance, yeah. We don't want to level the hill. 4,000 years ago, the hilltop, we believe, from all the shovel test pit study we've been doing, and we had the president of New Hampshire Archaeological Society with us doing um, a lot of that during the 90s, and she just retired this fall after all these years. And we were doing them, uh, we did a big project in the 90s, and then we picked that up, and we were still doing shovel test pits up to recently. So we probably have about 90 shovel test pits. And from that, um, what she said is the hilltop probably was about 75% bare bedrock, 25% covered with, um, you know, soil and probably glacial soils and soils and uh vegetation and her husband was a doctor of geology at tufts university for 30 years so she had a pretty good background with that and she traveled around the world with him so she's an archaeologist he's a geologist and made a really nice team and he helped the new Hampshire archaeological society out he died 25 years ago unfortunately just as a retired um and she was doing the impact study on our local highway which is still being worked on today widening it she did all the um impacts uh, ecological impact study back in the 90s and then her husband was driving down there and somebody hit him in the car you know and, and killed him so um you know we lost him too but um but the geology of the hill probably looked quite a bit different you know we were talking about water levels and what did the place look like you know but i i can imagine that the hilltop was pretty open and so with this forestry project we're not going to level the trees but we're going to have it a little bit thinner so you can get a better idea of the alignments, the serpentine walls, and all the rest of the different features up there. you are to see them better, you know, and it'll give you a little better idea of how, what the hill looked like. And it's actually beautiful where they've opened up some of the clearings. It's like this is a really pretty spot up here. So we'll be able to see a little bit more of that. And that project should be done, I think, unless the weather does incorporate. I'm thinking probably just talking to the licensed forester yesterday. Again, he was up this week, and then we talked uh, on the phone yesterday. He believes they're going to start next week in the project and should probably be done. I think sometime in February. So this is going to go pretty quick because they did a lot of work a year ago, getting everything laid out, all the roads and everything. And so, um, but the area they're doing now, that not only outside where there's stone features, they have to be careful of, but near the main site. There's 15 acres, and we're gonna. It's going to be a little bit slower going there because there's more walls and structures, they're gonna to have to be capital. But they won't get into the main main site where the chain link fence is that we can't get in there. We'd have to take the chain it's just it would be too dangerous, you know, for the structures. But we are going to do the fifteen acres surrounding that where all the astronomical alignments are and then they're gonna work out further on the next ninety acres. In North Stonington, Connecticut, there's a site there it's basically the town with eight thousand features. And um a book by Mark Starr, Mark and Star came out four years ago. And you can see the same set of stone features they have here, like walls that look like shark teeth, windows, like I mentioned, serpentine walls is about 400 of them, similar stone structures, astronomical alignments, monoliths, and cones, and chevron walls, and wall shaped like the letter D is in delta. And again, we're finding these across the nation, too. But they did about 100 acres. Now, those structures, those 8,000 are over 35,000 acres on private and public lands, but there's one... Area that was kind of a um a protected area, and they just did about the same size area, just a little over hundred acres where quite a few of these structures are and They did such a nice job that you can see the structures the trees aren't falling on the structures you know are uprooting they they removed them near the walls and a couple of the uh forestry people went to the New England antiquities Research Association meeting they have two a year in the spring and fall, and last year, before you know covid nineteen took over, they still had the meeting. And um, the uh, forester actually came in and gave a presentation on how to take care of the woods, how to take care of these structures, and as you mentioned, the balance, you know. And um, so it was well done and well received. So that's kind of what we're doing.
1: Okay, and with the the solstice coming up, um, what we're also going to get this grand conjunction what is a celestial phenomenon is that basically kind of like almost like what some people have hypothesized that it's almost like this? that was the star of Bethlehem
2: yeah right the star in the east yeah possibly you know um, I guess the last one's there's you know, the next one I think is in about what is it, eighty years, uh sixty years, right? Sixty years we had a Twenty eighty I think there's another one. I probably won't be around for that. I don't know. <laughs> but uh yeah, it was one eight hundred years ago and then there's I guess because the orbital planes of Jupiter and Saturn, if they were both aligned on the same plane, you'd have this quite frequently, you know, but they're tilted, you know. So it's um it doesn't happen that often, you know. Uh they they do there is a conjunction with them, but the one's above the other and, you know, they're separated. And now it, I think they're going to be about six minutes or one tenth of a degree roughly um, apart. So with the naked eye, they almost look like it's one object. You know, I think I said, good eye, only oh. with good eyes or binoculars, you're able to separate them, you know? Um, but it's going to be pretty bright, you know, and uh, being on the winter solstice is so cool too. I mean, it will, you can start to see it now anyway, a few days before and after, you know, but I guess right on the winter solstice, it's going to be, you know, uh, at its maximum, you know, alignment, which is really, you know, is really pretty amazing, you know. And, and for us to have our 50th anniversary, it's like, that's pretty cool, you know, to have that and our 50th anniversary, you know. And, um, you know, I don't know, it'll be hundreds of years before that probably happens again, you know, on that particular date. So, uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. I just hope the uh, the New England weather cooperates, you know. <laughs> if it's cloudy, it's like, we'll be it's out there, you know. But... <laughs> You know, you can't see it. <laughs> it. It
1: it it just sounds like something just for as horrible as 2020 has been, it, at least there's something y- unique and, and good happening at, at, at the end, Maybe, you know, just ho- hopefully uh, usher in a much better year.
2: I think that's right, Mike. Yeah, it's been kind of a really rough year for everybody, you know, and a lot of people lost their loved ones and, you know, a lot of people not traveling, doing my. Right. I we only went to Florida before it all began once, you know, and that's about it for the year. But, I mean, people can't really go out to eat like they used to and, and hopefully things will turn around. So I think it's kind of cool, you know. I think it's kind of something people can actually enjoy together and look at and say, oh, that's pretty cool. It hasn't happened for so many years and it ain't going to happen for, you know, many, many more years. And uh, especially with the winter solstice, to have it coincide with that. Um, it's pretty neat. Cool. I'm uh, kind of excited about that. Yeah, I, that should be live streamed, I think, you know. <laughs> so, I, my daughter in law up there, she's good with technology. To see if maybe she can, she got a new baby too. It depends on the baby, what the baby's up to, you know. The baby's only three months old. So, in fact, the baby was born when we were doing the optically stimulated luminescence testing that day on that Friday. I think you know about that, you know. And she had a rush to the hospital, and we're, we had 20 something people up there doing the testing. First time that's been done on our site. And, uh, you know, we're so excited about that. Next thing we know, I'm being told that my, do- my daughter-in-law is off to the hospital in an emergency. The baby's going to be, you know, the baby may be coming and it's five weeks early. So uh, and that was on 9-11 of all days, too, you know. So um, <laughs> <laughs> another one of those things, you know, it's certainly a memorable day. And I, you know, I used to, I flew for American, you know, and everything. So that day's always, for everybody, it's kind of a very sensitive, you know, time and And then have all these people up here doing the testing, and then my daughter my grand first grandchild, my granddaughter, was born that day. And I didn't really find I think she was born around 4:30. I didn't find out till like five o'clock or later because it was so crazy that day with all the people at our place doing the testing and everything. But those results, um, well, we might have mentioned that on this uh, mentioned this before on the show, but the results I think will be probably around nine months. I might get surprised, maybe it will be earlier. But um, roughly nine months from now, we'll get the uh, results of the uh, four cores that were taken, one of them at the Watch House we mentioned earlier, and then the, the other ones were up on the Oracle Chamber in the main site, and also four other sites in New England were tested um, in Connecticut, I think, in Massachusetts. I, at the time, I remembered where they were, but I forget now. But uh, that might be kind of interesting because we know in Pennsylvania, two years ago, a separate project was done on, a, uh, I guess, a terraced land that they believe was man-made and also a structure. And I haven't been there, I've been to Pennsylvania, but I've never been to that particular site, unless I was a kid. I'm not even sure if people knew about it back then. Because in 1969, we all went down there and flew in Northeast Airlines and spent uh, Thanksgiving riding around and seeing a lot of stuff down in the uh, New Jersey, Pennsylvania area. And we saw quite a few different things, but they did optically stimulated luminescence. It took about two years to get the results back. I guess it's getting better now. And the the, um, structure is not, according to the last I heard, it's certainly not colonial or post-colonial as many, um, some skeptics think or mainstream. The date, if it's accurate, the big thing is if it's accurate and it's done correctly, it dated, Mm -hmm. what I heard was, and I read was 450 BC. So it wasn't a colonial, post-colonial, it was pre-colonial and pre-Columbian and pre-Christian time period, 450. And um, I want to find out more about that because that, that's interesting, you know. I mean, that's that's one of these struck sites we talk about, you know. So
1: so, so, so that was more of an Adena-era
2: site? <laughs> yeah, that time period. And How- I wonder, you know, if um, – I like to see the results of that because those dates give you a minimum date, you know. So could the site have been sitting there before that, you know, a few years, many years? I don't know because the structure we built and then the soil – um, is deposited by natural causes, you know, wind-blown soil and vegetation decay, you know, and, or I suppose it could be somebody backfilled it too, but the idea is when did that soil see the light of day last, you know? And so they're measuring that and it's a radioactive kind of use laser beams and everything. And they even need these little, um, these little, um, devices in the cores for a year. And then they collect them and they actually have to measure that radiation that they collect over a year in those same holes, uh, and they add that into the results, I guess. And that's why it takes a year, you know? So I'd like to see more information about that, but the preliminary information, it wasn't, you know, built a few hundred years ago. It looks like it's built over, over 2,400 years ago, you know? And, and, right, it would be in that time period you were talking about. But, you know, was it built a few years before that or many, many years into an earlier time period? I don't know. So um, so it's kind of a minimum date.
1: <clears throat> and, and this, you know, with these... OSL uh, testing, uh, you, you know the testing technique. Have you heard? I understand it's you know relatively new, but you know with any of the test results that have come back, um, are there any dates? showing that there is a place contemporary with America's Stonehenge?
2: were they all much
1: places? later?
2: Well, that's a great question. I think that will be a g- very good question when we get the results back from our site and those other four sites. I mean, um, you know, it's 450 BC is putting it back. Um, you know, and like I said, it could be older than that. So it's, our site has carbon datings starting in 1966. There's over 12 carbon datings that were done. And uh, the date's Range from, um, oh, uh, one of them was a composite, uh, contaminated sample that dated around 18, I think around 1800. I Oh, no, 1690, I think it was. Was No, that was the root, 1690. Yeah, about 18-something. That was in 66. But uh, the main site, the oldest dating was 4,000 years old, and outside the main site, there seems to be a fire pit about 20 feet from the North Stone, and that dated to about 7,400 years. So there's maybe a range of time that the site was used. And then, you know, and and that doctor from Penn State actually has three phases of construction. He used the cabin dating, and he also used the astronomical alignments. Uh, And he comes up with three different time periods, like Stonehenge was built in stage one, two, three, ABC, Mm -hmm. over 1500 years. And he has something similar to that on our site. It's it's, his hypotheses or his theory, and it's back supported by some data such as the cabin datings and the astronomical alignments. But unfortunately, he passed away before he could do more work on that to really support that hypothesis, you know, more data and more more research and all of that. So um, I think that's a good question, Mark. I think once we get the uh, our day back, we'll see, you know. But that 450 BC was really interesting to me. I was like, wow, that's that's nothing recent, you know. Now, the Upton Chamber in Massachusetts, um, about 60 miles from where my site is, and uh, that site there looks like an igloo, if you will. It's, and in Europe, they would call them a passage grave. Even uh, Newgrange is kind of a passage grave, you know, a long passage. Mm-hmm. And it, although it may not have been a grave, it was probably there were some cremation things, but it may have been more of a, a, a kind of a temple, you know, where people could go in there and watch these alignments, you know. And, uh, but its alignment is with the Pleiades and I believe the equinox. You have to check, double-check the equinox, but there's some hills nearby that had structures on them. Standing stones and stonework, and it's called Pratt Hill. And it, the alignment through the entrance way out to them is kind of a long entrance, too, on this Upton Chamber, and it, and it looks at the Pleiades. And the Pleiades could be used, I guess, as bookmarks for the growing season, I've been told. Plus, you know, the people kind of worshiped many different types of heavenly bodies, and the Pleiades were definitely one of them. Um, but it has corbelling in it. Uh, OSL dating was done in 2011 by. Uh, Dr. David Stewart Smith again, and his assistant, who's been one of our assistants at our, our site for quite a few years now, and the results on that took almost five years for that OSL, so it is getting better, um, and, the, and the date on that, I believe, was, um, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember it was about 450, I think it was, AD, so this is before Columbus's time, and this latest project in September, they wanted to do that structure over again, which is always a good thing, to double check, triple check. But um, the town of Upton, Massachusetts, has it as part of its historical, one of its historical sites. And I think they didn't have time to, uh, to get the uh, permits to do that. So I don't think they did the Upton Chamber again. I mean, that would be really neat if they did. But um, it may be an older structure, you know. They wanted to get some dates from the back of it, I guess, or different parts of the structure, you know. Um, but it is a fascinating structure, and it's one of again of about 800 in the uh, in the northeast, <clears throat> and again astronomically aligned, which is kind of cool too. When people call them root cellars, you know, um, it's kind of an easy explanation. But uh, root cellars usually have ventilation. They say 90% of the structures in the Northeast don't have ventilation, so the vegetables will probably rot. They don't have clay floors or something to insulate the floors against frost. they usually bedrock, which would transmit the cold, you know, and freeze the crops. And their entrances are quite often, almost all the time, aligned with some, you know, cross quarter day, quarter day, or, you know, some star alignment or something like that, or the Pleiades is the upland chamber is and the dry stone construction. They do have core building in some of the structures and they have stone roofs, no cement used. And you don't see the drill marks, you know, the modern drill marks. So mm-hmm. there's a lot, I think we came up with 10 different things and why these structures wouldn't be something that's colonial or post-colonial. Um, it's possible some farmer did build some of these and we've, you know, misidentified them, but I think the OSL will help, too. It's it's pretty cool, you know. If you can do the OSL, you can't always find charcoal everywhere. But OSL, all you need is dirt. But you need undisturbed dirt. It can't be disturbed by animals or humans or trees uprooting and all of that. And that's one of the fears because it cost – it was over $1,000 per sample. So make sure that if you take several cores, that you get cores where this soil hasn't been, you know, messed up by anybody or anything – And that's why we brought in the ground penetration radar on top of the Oracle chamber when they did that. So we had that data collected. And we also had the LIDAR, which also, it just shows down to the surface. Of course, it can't go below the surface. But the LIDAR really shows the structure. And then you use the ground penetration radar to look beneath the soil, you know, the the surface, you know. And with that, if there's any question as to any um, contamination or, you know, anything like that, they can look at that imaging and, they can get more date, more information about it. Yeah, it looks like it's been disturbed, or no, or whatever, you know. So, I mean, all it takes is like a chipmunk to get in there, and a little animal burrowing into the roof, letting light uh, on the dirt, and then this hole gets filled in, and then somebody goes in there years later and takes that core, and maybe the uh, animal did it like you know a hundred years ago, you know, and they'll say, oh yeah, that dirt's only a hundred years old there, you know, you know. <laughs> so it doesn't. All the structure's a hundred years old, when actually it's just a contaminated thing, and I think the. uh I think the radar the radar might be able to detect that kind of disturbance. That's one of the things. And it was the first time we used oh. OSL with LIDAR and ground penetration radar, you know, on 9-11 that day.
1: <clears throat> okay, so th- with, you know, the ground penetrating radar and doing the uh, OSL, it is you're reliable for uh, you you know, or, or any property owner to try to cut down on some of these mistakes that you know groundhog you know burrowed in there and <laughs> you know the test comes back yeah you, know, mm. you know from last week or something like that
2: yeah, so yeah. if you could, if you can afford it you know i get you know like the testing itself like uh, it was pretty expensive and then you bring in the you know, the radar, you know, and, and, you know, um, you know, there's a charge for that, of course. And then the lidar, you know, but it's all really useful equipment. If you're doing something like that, spending all that money on OSL, it's probably good to use, you know, get a nice lidar image. You don't have to, but it really, you know, if you're going to think really important, you get the lidar, it really maps everything perfectly, you know, down to about a centimeter. And then you use the ground penetration radar and we, what they're gonna be doing, uh, the two people that have the two different companies, they're gonna blend their imaging together. So we'll have 3D above and below the ground imaging, you know, um, different oh, wow. parts of our kill drop. And it's the first time they've really done that. And again, to and they were doing that back in the spring and in the summer. And then on 9-11, we brought them in again to have them there that day with the other, uh, you know, couple dozen people up there, you know. Um, and, uh, and to have all that equipment used together, I think is the very first time. But yeah, so this question, you can go back and look at the radar. You know, we really ran it over the uh, Oracle chamber. We saw some interesting stuff. One thing we didn't know is that the soil on the top of the roof was so deep. And that was discovered not with a radar initially. I went up there with a T-probe and a um, and a um, uh, tape measure. And I took the T-probe. My dad made it years ago. And I put it into the roof. We had to a find a couple of, um, you know, a couple of um, places to do this coring, you know, with the OSL and find a good candidate places, you know, that would be undisturbed. And the soil had to be a certain depth. And when I started, I only took four. I poked four holes, and I marked them with flags so they won't be, you know, wouldn't be um, dug or wouldn't be cored, you know, because they're just about, uh, maybe the rod's maybe about a half an inch across, maybe a little bit, a little less. Anyway, I put the rod into four different places on the top of the oracle chamber, and I marked them with flags, and my surprise was that, they went from over 17 and a half inches of dirt on top of the roof of that chamber to 24. Our guess was there's probably about four or five or six inches. And when we were talking to the people from uh, NERA that were kind of working with Dr. Feather from university of Washington, they stated that it had to be several, you know, they gave me a, a more like, you know, maybe a foot of dirt would be good. They didn't give me an exact amount, but when I told them 17 and a half inches to 24, which really surprised the devil out of us, you know, it doesn't look like that much depth there. Uh, right to the roof of the chamber, you know. <clears throat> they were like, that should work as long as it's not disturbed. So they took uh, a couple cores from the top. They took a couple from inside. And then they did the, um, the watch house, uh, the wall in front of the watch house, too. So we have four cores. And uh, then they worked on the other sites in New England, too. And I wasn't, I wanted to go with them on that, but I didn't have the opportunity to. I was too, too busy at the museum. But um, so in about nine months, we'll find out, you know, well, there'll be a lot of explaining to do, Um, you know, the the dates could come back, they may disagree with one another, they may come back, agree with one another, and they may come back and agree with our carbon dating and the astronomical data, and the stone tools and the way the stones are shaped using, you know, percussion flaking, which is a stone age technology, or they may come back and disagree with that. And then, you know, so there's a lot of questions going through my mind, you know, and uh, kind of anxious about it and, and excited about it, too, you know. Uh, what what it will be, but um, so far the sites they've tested are older sites than mainstream would have guessed. You know.
1: Yeah, and <clears throat>
2: so,
1: since we've you know, been talking about these uh, structures, uh, last Friday on Ancient Aliens, they were examining. These Cyclopean megalithic structures of Malta. Uh, You've toured Malta, and uh, you know the huge megalithic uh, uh, structures in Brittany. Um, all these uh, megalithic sites may predate uh, the pyramids, and you know. In the 12th century, uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth uh, marveled about the stones from Stonehenge being transported from Africa to Ireland and you know where they are now. Uh, do, do you have any idea of how the massive slabs at your place were set there?
2: <clears throat> yeah, us, our uh, slabs. Um or native, or from the hill, actually. You know, we've pretty much, it's the same rock material. We found some of the quarry sites, and I mentioned probably 33 different uh, quarried slabs that are still in situ, and their original quarry socket but they've been raised up, split from the bedrock, they've been propped up, usually with a field stone, you know, a foot two feet across, and somebody stuck it underneath the stone to hold it up in the air. And that gave them an angle to use um, a hammer stone to start dressing the stone or shaping it with percussion flaking. And that's what David Stuart Smith and Dr. Gary Hume found in 1983, the year after that stone was located, um, the very first one, that uh, there's all these little stone flakes along the uh, edge of it and buried with several inches of soil. So it had been done a long time ago when the bedrock was bare. These people would walk around and see the hilltop. It was pretty clean of trees, and it was pretty much just bare bedrock. And you could look out there and say, oh, this is a great spot to try to pry up this piece of ledge. You know, Today, if you walk around up there, Most of the hilltop is covered with soil and trees and brush. And if you'd be be, uh, without ground penetration radar or digging all the dirt up, you would say, where am I going to find bedrock to pry up? It's all covered with earth. We dig everything up here. But back in the ancient times, it made sense. And so these slabs that are up there, they're propped. They're slowly becoming buried with earth. It makes them a little hard to see, but some of them are 10 feet across, 12 feet across. A few of them are four or five feet across, you know, um, and they're slowly hot be, being hidden by soil, by the deposit uh, <clears throat> of soil, you know. It's about an inch every 125 years in New England, but on a hill like ours, it's slower because of erosion. But um, so they didn't move our stones from, you know, great distances. They moved them maybe up to a 1,000 feet and up the hill. So if you have a multi-ton slab, it's still a question as how did you move it. And if it was mostly bedrock that then, it's pretty solid surface. And it's it's kind of, it's not too rough, you know, because there, there is exposed bedrock up there. A little bit bumpy, but, you know, not you could actually take log rollers, you know. It's a matter of, you know, what did they use to pull it with, you know. And they didn't have beast of burden, so it must have been people, you know, with um, ropes of some kind, and they must have hauled them up the hill that way, you know. And some of them are down on the sides of the hill and the intention would be to bring them up to the main site where some of the structures that their rocks probably came from the same areas that these stones are still sitting and in england uh, or in europe they call these stones that never made it to the structures they're still near their quarry they call them lazy stones you know (laughs) they they shouldn't pick on the stones like that it was the people that didn't move them but they're still sitting out there and um so it's a matter of log, log rollers, perhaps, and some sort of ropes. And it's speculation on our part because we can't find the tools. They've rotted, you know. And then when they get them to the main site, when you build the chamber, you know, you build the walls first. And then you either put wooden cribbing inside the structure to stabilize the walls or you fill them with earth. And then you, and then you use an inclined plane next to the structure, perhaps, you know, to bring the stone up and then place it on top. And some of the Ruslavs, like the biggest one on the main site, today is about 14 tons you know, almost 30,000 pounds. It's estimated at. it's 163 pounds per cubic foot. So we can actually take the dimensions and you come up with a weight. And they would move them up and set them on top of the roofs. And once that was done, they could start digging out the dirt or removing the cribbing, the wooden cribbing inside the structure perhaps. And the weight of the rocks really hold the chambers together. Once you remove the roofs, they fall in by natural causes of people, you know, vandalism or just people wanting these slabs. The walls will start falling down very quickly, you know. Yeah, it's just matter a matter of decades or so, these walls will start crumbling without the weight of the roof. So the roof is what really holds the structures together. And some of them do have the core building, you know, in the corners. Uh, the oracle chamber or the east wing of it is all core built you know. It's that inverted staircase kind of, not a true arch, but. You know, that it's kind of cool, and you see that in many ancient European sites, you know, kind of a core band effect. So, yeah, it's a roof slabs that hold the structures together, probably simple machinery. I know David Stewart-Smith, again, he spent a lot of time um, on how the stones are actually removed from the bedrock. How did they actually, how did you separate it, first off, maybe working a fissure or crack, but you had to be able to see it. Again, so you go back thousands of years when the hill was pretty bare, you could actually probably spot these places and say, hey, I think we can get that piece of rock out of there, you know. And then once you prop it up, you start hitting it with hammerstone, shaping it like a multi-ton arrowhead, if you will, you know, percussion flaking. And then once you get it dressed in the shape basically you want, it would lighten the load a little bit, and then you start transporting it, you bring it up to the site, and then maybe you make some final, you know. That's why we still have flakes from that 3,000-year-old and 4,000-year-old carbon dating on the on the north side of the north wall of the chamber in ruins, there's all these little spallings that were found in 1969 and 71 when they found the three and four thousand year old carbon datings. You know they found the um, they found the hammer stones rubbing stones, stone tools. So once a big slab, even if it had been dressed out in the woods, or there wouldn't have been much woods out there, but I don't where it came from, and then transported, you still probably have to do some final finish work on it. You know, shaping it a little bit more. You know the you know to make it fit. And then you find all the little flakes of stone where they were finishing it off, and that's what we found on the main site, you know, plus the tools to do it with, you know. So, um, yeah, it's still a mystery, you know, how did they move the stones from, you know, from the Pasadena Mountains in Wales down to Stonehenge? Some people think that they they either floated them over there in boats, they dragged them over land, or the rivers were frozen, but when they look at, you know, the weather patterns back then, the climatologists say, well, it was a warmer time period 5,000 years ago, so the rivers wouldn't have been frozen enough to bring them up like the Avon River, you know, the one that goes near Stonehenge. I've been there a few times. It wouldn't have been frozen. It wouldn't have been frozen. You couldn't have, you know, put it, the ice wasn't there, you know, at that time when the, when it was being built. So good idea, but when they look at the, you know, they can look at pollens and different things, you know, I mean, they can they can pretty much tell what weather was, you know, as you go back thousands of years tree rings and all sorts of different, you know, like I say, they do flotation. They look at pollen samples and then you look at ice sheets, you know, up in Greenland and stuff like that. And you get an idea of what was going on in the world. And then during the time of Stonehenge, I think it was warm. So they couldn't have put them on ice. So they're still debating that and how did those stones get there, you know? It was like 150 miles for the blue stones. And then the sausons came from about 18 or 19 miles up in Marlborough Downs. That's still a long ways when you're pulling a 30-ton stone. You know, you don't have trains and trucks and cranes that we have today anyway. So, good questions. I don't know. but uh, And then you get out to the mound builders out west. How the devil did they build those mounds? They say they use baskets, you know. You look at Cahokie or something like that, you know. Or even uh, you mentioned Newark and Chillicothe. How much work went into that, you know. But,
3: yeah.
2: Um, it, people were ambitious, that's for sure. <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't sitting around. Uh, that's that's a lot of ambition, <laughs> Good engineering, too, I think, you know, and astronomical, too, to line it up with the heavens and probably some mathematics, too, involved with that, you know, and then a standard unit of measure you were mentioning earlier, too, uh, all of these things. And that's why we can use that um, that LIDAR, too, you know, to work on a standard unit of measure, you know, is, um, is that megalithic yard or, you know, 83 centimeters, uh, 2.72 feet that seems to be uh, in South America also in Mexico, and then in the, some of the mounds in the southern part of the United States, and we seem to have it here in some of the New England sites. They haven't measured them all, you know? Um, you can use the LiDAR, is wonderful, and then they have a thing called laser scanning, and I think our LiDAR person said, yeah, and they have to set it up on tripods like they did in Machu Picchu, but it's a very time-consuming and very, very expensive piece of equipment, so the rates go way up when you pay somebody to do that, but you can get really, really accurate measurements with that. But the LIDAR I think is the next best thing and it's really good, you know. So we're gonna be using that because on the on the um on the LIDAR imaging with the computer, he uh, Tom, Tom Elmore whose company it is, GeoNav, um, amazing what he can do, what he showed me he can do with his computer, you know, we, we can measure down to a centimeter. So I think we're gonna be able to uh work on that and uh see what we come up with. We we already think it's the megalithic yard, you know, by measuring it even starting in the 1970s so but that may be a very good piece of evidence that the site again wasn't built by some you know shoemaker some people say that you know the Patty family were there and they were but it doesn't look like a farm it doesn't look like a shoe shop if you just look at the site and it doesn't look like a cider mill and when Roscoe Whitney the MIT uh, engineer worked on the site back in the 1930s. He measured everything and he had a plane table. He did cross sections, profile, and plan view. And he mentioned that because I measured every wall, every niche, and every roof and everything, he goes, whoever built this either didn't give them a damn about linear measurements or know anything about these because I looked at the imperial measurements, the imperial measurements of inches, feet, and yards, and this site does not conform to that. So that was in the 1930s, you know. So. I'm still working on that 80 something years later.
1: <laughs> so yeah that's one of the you know, enigmatic aspects of your property is you, know, you get you're talking about the imperial measurements <coughs> megalithic yard, yeah, you know, seems like, you know, it could, could have been employed there. Uh, it, 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 that's just one of the things we just haven't been able to f- figure out yet.
2: Yeah. And that's really a good piece of evidence. Cause when you build anything, a plane or a house or a shed or whatever, a car or whatever, anything you build in the world, you know, is there a certain measurement? The Egyptians used like a cubic, and they had another measurement, which yeah. was, I can't remember the top of my head. The Minoans had their foot. You know, I, we, I think you've mentioned that to me. Roughly about 12 inches, a little different. But, and then the mm-hmm. um, Spanish had the Vera, which was actually 20, uh, 32.68 inches. The Megalithic Yard is 32.64, so very, very close. There's one in India, and I believe it's called the Kishku, but I've seen another name for it, so that name may not be correct. It's like a royal measurement I think, and it was roughly just under 30 inch, uh just, what was it, under 33 inches, so it was very close to a megalithic there, too. And uh, Dr. Clark from BYU, I think he had a he had the 83-centimeter. Uh, in fact, you sent me some of the data from him, but he had that other one, too, and it was like, and you were correct, it was an 86-centimeter 86, 86 for a different measurement, uh standard unit of measure, too, and it had a different name. Mm-hmm so ancient people did use some sort of standards i think you know that's what j-
1: just while well, like having you as a guest is you know we just kind of see something different emerging at your place it just i, I don't know if it's uh like a crossroads and just it's just uh you know one of those uh places where you know we it, it, with the absence of any you know d n a testing you can look for you know what contemporary cultures were do uh using and yeah you know, it's kinda of really not all it's revealing a whole lot of clues <laughs> you get the corbelled ceiling that you already discussed, the Ibex petroglyph. It it, it would just be neat to find definitive proof of, you know, like that megalithic yard, the uh, imperial measurements. Something to get a little bit of writing uh, with the ball stone,
3: um, Dennis dropped off, but he'll be back, I'm sure.
1: Oh. Oh, okay. I was just sitting here, just rambling on about, uh, <laughs> yeah, stop, I did. I didn't know that, but um, yeah, it, it, yeah, that. y
4: you know, you're talking the corbel construction. You know, in some of these, um, yeah. Chambers and Patrick and I saw that a
1: lot too. Dennis is back.
2: I'm okay. back. I, uh, the computer, the computer, the woman on the computer told me goodbye. <laughs> she said goodnight to me. <laughs> but I'm back, I think. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, I'll have a I'll talk with her after the show.
2: Please, please do. Yeah, she was nice about it, but all of a sudden I'm like, what? Um, but you know, the other one we, yeah, I mean, Barbara's talking about the Corbel. And you know, the other thing we found too just recently. Uh, I guess, you know, we found since 2016, the, uh, possibly 14 serpent walls and about the same number of windows, but the uh, trapezoid shape too, you know, uh, the groove on the table, uh, is trapezoid, not rectangular. There's a niche to the left of the table. It looks like a little animal pen, if you will. And, uh, I looked at it a few times and, gosh, this thing looks, uh, it's not right angles. It's not rectangular or square. It looks trapezoid. And so he measured it. You know, it's a little rough to measure because the rocks there aren't squared like they are, in, you know, some of the, you know, maybe like uh, in Egypt, you know, and that kind of thing. But um, overall measurement, it one end was wider than the other. And in the chamber, like a chamber in ruins, the, the roof slab has fallen in. It's about a six or 7,000-pound roof slab and a 1,000-pound lintel. So it's a little hard to work around in there. But my son is an engineer. And we got in there, and we measured it, and it came out like a trapezoid. The paddy chamber, which is not built by the patties, but it's a structure that was down near where the cellar hole was, and that looked trapezoid. And then the hole where the paddy's house was sitting was, we think, an ancient courtyard. And... What we did is we looked at the LIDAR, and again with Tom Elmore, and we're looking at that just visually. And when you look at the LIDAR, and it gets rid of all the vegetation, you know, and it's good down to a centimeter approximately. Those – and I said, Tom, does that look trapezoid too? He goes, oh, yes, absolutely. And then we looked at the next structure. And you can see the, the LIDAR's cool because as you walk around in the structures, it does the interior too. You can see the plan view. It's like stripping off the roof, if you would. And it's trapezoid. The next structure, trapezoid. The little niche next to the table, trapezoid. It's like that trapezoid uh, patents pop- popping up at our site. What its significance is, I don't know. But I did read some of the megalithic sites in England have a trapezoid shape. So, but it's not. Hmm. But there, it's in South America too. So it doesn't identify a culture. It's in different places in the world. I'm sure there's other places I haven't even thought of you know, in other parts of the world, other continents where the trapezoid. But I think uh, a shoemaker, you know, colonial, post-colonial, would have done 90 degree corners, and it would have been rectangular or square, not this trapezoid right. thing going on, you know? So that's another thing we discovered, too. So we got to kind of look at, we're going to do a little bit more research and see if we can determine if ever, what that means, you know? One,
1: one of the... Uh... I don't, I don't, I don't I'm j- j- jump a little too far ahead of myself here, but it, you know the earliest uh, professionally done carbon fourteen dating is, is of you know, like a overnight or weekend uh, cookouts from was like five thousand BC. Then three thousand late years later the stone construction seemed to have started then it's uh there seems to have been a sudden pause then the hill was reutilized um you know later or, <clears throat> such as, uh, at, at the uh, glacial cliff shelter, um, it, one of my I- interests in this prehistoric study is, uh, you know, why were these, uh, archaeological sites suddenly ba- mm-hmm. abandoned, um, you, know, you get uh, uh, the Adena using the Canola Valley in Charleston for you know, multiple generations, and all of a sudden, you know, just kind of stop uh, building uh, mounds, and you know, they basically vacated the area. Um, we have uh, other Archaic. You, you know, what happened at your place with the sudden uh, abandonment? You know, like the uh, you know, like you showed me with the uh, rocks propped under the slabs and um, like, it, it, the, work the work wasn't finished.
2: Yeah, when yeah. we found uh, more of the big slabs, like you know, we, like the first one in '82 yeah. and through the '80s, we found a few of them up there. You know, and again, they're getting kind of hard to see because very slowly they're getting covered with earth and vegetation. Um, But, um, you know, as we found more and more of them, particularly uh, I retired in 2016, we found even more. And um, it's like, wow, there's like 33 I think we got now. It's like, wow, these guys must have had a bigger plan. And and if that's so, they weren't done with the site. They weren't done with the site. What happened to them? You know, they had big plans and then they went away. I think the uh, OSL will help because they did the Oracle chamber and then we did the wall in front of the uh, watch house might give us a better idea when the serpent, the big 2,550 foot serpentine wall was built, you know, was it contemporary with the Oracle chamber for instance, and the Oracle chamber Mm -hmm. was that built at the same time as the rest of the structures in the main site. Was it built at a different time by descendants or ancestors of these people was it different people, you know, and if the standard unit of measure changes at our site, you know, like some of the structures conform to that, but then you get another structure that doesn't quite, you know, it's a different, seems like it doesn't fit. <clears throat> Maybe it's um, a different group of people. <clears throat> so those those things might give us a little bit more, you know, information as to, um, you know, was the site continuously used? Was it used and abandoned and then used again? And um, I think, if you know, if you have a different, uh, measuring system being used there. That would be really interesting, you know, if if it does exist. We don't know, of course. And um yeah, it, and if the OSL dates are different too, you know, on the serpentine walls, which we think they might be. You know, like some people think the serpentine walls were later and some people say maybe they were an earlier. I'm thinking maybe later, but just because of the their arrangement in relationship to the watch house in relationship to the site. But that could be wrong, you know. I don't have any idea what Time period difference there is, but it's like yeah, it looks like it's old. we do know that maybe the astronomical center was at the uh, at this boulder, which is um, to the west of the main site, and it's actually one of the four collinear alignments for the mid-year alignment. Some people call it the equinox, but it's actually divides the year into quarters or halves, and it's four points that on that west that, that west alignment, and uh, that boulder actually back in the seventies they. They 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 noticed that too. So they I have a map that is based on that, with all the alignments off of that boulder, not where the two cons were, just north of the sacrificial table. And we were talking of that what like forty almost forty five years ago that we think that the astronomy evolved and changed, and they actually moved the astronomical center. So if that's true, it sounds like different people too, different time periods. You know, def- definitely different time periods. You know, but. Um, Boy, if that sum is different, you know, standard unit of measure, and if we get the OSL dating back, you know, dating the at least one serpentine wall different than the main site, that would be really interesting, you know, because I know you're really interested in that. You know, why was site abandoned? You know, was it multiple use? Was it a layering of cultures? I don't know.
1: Yeah, (laughs) and you know, when I do my uh, scribblings from time to time. I have I to. You uh, read,
2: I can't read mine when I do that. I can't make out my hieroglyphics. <laughs> like, what did I it, write? Yeah, that, <laughs>
1: it, it, but yeah. You know, so, so somewhere uh, after I try to, you know, decide, decipher what I wrote, uh, <laughs> and there's usually <laughs> so, something about uh, the the mounds in you know the Ohio valley. It's started off as an archaic burial and you get the Adena and Hopewell and you know the Fort Ancient Pe- it's like you know 3000 years of people buried in uh, one mounds you know it's probably you know reason you know,
2: it's wow. So, wow. so
1: so difficult to figure out uh, what culture <laughs> was there you know, like no no one wants to yeah. you know really deal with it so but um yeah yeah
2: definitely
1: you, you know, yeah you you, you do ha- have that uh, you know the wigwam site that was found in the parking lot it, I, you know, I think you said that was m- much more recent so it, it
3: mm-hmm.
1: you, you know what you ha- have going on there it, it it does make it really intriguing like how long was it being used as some kind of ceremonial center and you know the, it just does not seem to be a, 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 any kind of burial ground. It, it was, you know, people gathered there for a reason, but it, it's mm-hmm. fascinating to figure out uh, you know, just, you know, mm-hmm. ponder. How, how long was it actually used? I mean, and that's
2: a great question. It. Yeah, tough. I mean, there have been, um, you know, humans in New Hampshire and Native Americans go back uh There's paleo sites in Northern New Hampshire and a couple other places. They go back over 10,000 years. So sometimes people go, well, the site's 4,000 years old. Who was here 4,000 years ago? And we were just in that discussion with somebody the other day, too, that very discussion. And people have been here at least 6,000 years before the site was built, you know, from our best uh, evidence of the age of the site. But, yeah, there's a uh, 7,500-year-old cabin dating, too, up near the North Stone. And the North Stone itself, we got a uh, 1989 through 91. That was actually excavated. And uh, when our archaeologist, who was present on the Hampshire Archaeological Site at the time, joined us, she uh, she was open-minded enough to come and take a look at the place. And she stayed with us for 31 years. And she's still going to visit us. She's still around. But uh, she's, she worked on that for three years. And the date on that was about 650 AD. It was a fire pit right in front of the North Stone. So uh, 20 feet away, we have a 7,400-year-old date, you know, and then 20 feet back in front of the – North Stone, there's a 650 AD. It doesn't date the stone to that time, but just so somebody, at you know, 1,300 years ago built a fire in front of that stone that was standing there, used it as a backstop for a fire. So that's, you know, that's like a couple thousand years difference in time. Um, And then we have all the other carbon datings. And the wigwam, two carbon datings from two fire pits. It was about a 30-foot diameter wigwam, roughly. All the pulse moles were still there. And that was found by that archaeologist, too with her assistance. And that dated um, 2,000 years old and 1,700 years old from two fire pits, and they found grease from cooking. And that could have been cabin dating because it was organic. But I think there were, uh, after the two dates, they uh, ran out of funds for the year, you know, so that that, that dirt with the uh, organic uh, grease in it, you know, was never done. And that was almost, what, 29 years, 28 years ago. Uh, on the other side of the parking lot, they found a cooking rack, and they found charcoal. And unfortunately, they had already used up their budget for cabin dating, you know, and that, that was never dated either, which is unfortunate. So, yeah. that area around the parking lot may have been a village, perhaps, and just below it is a, a it goes downhill to our neighbor's property, and they had about 60 acres over there. And it's all kind of wetlands today, but our uh, feeling, talking to our archaeologists and Dr. David Stewart Smith, too, and a couple other people, is probably a pond there at one time. So, 2,000 years ago, you would have been looking at a wigwam. Just look down the hill, you would have seen they were living right next to a pond, which today has trees, and it's kind of swampy down there and everything. So um, mineral landscape has changed somewhat. And the glacial cliff shelter on the other side, opposite the wigwam, on the other side of the hill, probably three-quarters of a mile away, we found pottery in the 1950s, and that pottery stylistically dated to Middle Woodland Period pottery, roughly 2,000 years old, maybe as early as 2,500 years old. So it dated to about the same time as the Wigwam. The thought was maybe the, that was a summer camp under the glacial cliff, and that overlooks the Spicket River, which is a tributary of the Merrimack River, one of the larger rivers in New England that goes out to the ocean. And uh, the Wigwam was a winter camp, you know, and it's a dome kind of a sh- shaped structure, and it would maintain its warmth. Um, And it's sheltered on that side of the hill from the northwesterly winds. The shelter, the glacial cliff shelter is facing the northwesterly winds coming in from the north and from Canada to stay cool for the summer. So they may have migrated across the hilltop, you know, seasonally, you know, summer and winter. So um, that's a time period around the time of Christ, roughly, you know, the common era. And then we have dates all around that, as you've mentioned, you know. So, I mean, your question's excellent. And maybe with OSL, Maybe the standard unit of measure. Maybe we'll have a little, a little more light shed on that. You know, maybe, maybe we, we'll, you know, we can have a little more precise information, of, or at least a theory. You know, like, you know, this is a time period. This happened, and the serpentine walls came in around this time period. If we had more money and we could do more OSL tating, we would definitely do it along some of those walls, particularly the serpentine walls. You know, um, and maybe that will happen too. You know, maybe this will generate interest. And hopefully, some funding for that, you know, because it all costs money, obviously, to do this. It's uh, quite expensive, but it's pretty cool, pretty cool technology. And, you know, there are about 800 sites in New England. It'd be kind of neat if they could do several dozen of these, you know, I and mean, then maybe they'll have to, you know. I, I, I hope that happens, you know. Mm-hmm.
1: It, 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 <clears throat> and, Dennis, you were just um, mentioning uh, a <clears throat> pond, uh, swampy area and you know since you've had uh you know more time to uh, go through uh, the archives since you've retired you've been looking at the uh, topographic and contour maps um those look very interesting um and sounds like some of the swamps uh, were there thousands of years prior to um, any of the stone structures being built. But what do these maps tell us about the uh, Lay of the land, the uh, elevation, of where bodies of water used to be. Uh, you know, they could have. You know, you know, the swamps could have been nearly uh, drained by the time the chambers were built. But it, it, are we seeing any kind of uh, anthropological pattern of building near? A swamp or water or something like that. <clears throat> Elevations.
2: Yeah, generally these structures not always are built on the sides of hills, but not always, you know. And they can be small hills too. There's one over in Dan, uh, Danville, New Hampshire, and it's on like a little mounded hill, but it's built on the on the side of it, you know. But our hill's fairly big; it's about 360 feet above sea level, and we're just at the uh, up in Vermont at. Uh, I think it's calendar one site in Woodstock, and that's built on kind of the site of a hill. It's a very gentle hill, but it is a hill, and it's up, you know, the elevation's pretty high, and there are rivers up in that area, you know, so these structures are always from a river, maybe not next to a river, but not too far from a river because they may have been used as highways, you know, Um, and also Native American pathways or trails, which are usually based on old deer trails, became footpaths, and then some of the footpaths became... Where they had wagons during the colonial, post-colonial, and today there are roads and secondary roads and highways. And on the west side of us is the Pawtucket Native American Trail. And on the east side is the Pen, uh, the uh, Pawtucket's on the west, and the Pentucket is on the east. And those, those are actually Native American tribes too, and they're part of the Penacook, which is part of the uh, the uh, Abenaki, the uh, Wabanaki, uh, Algonquin, I should say. Uh, Native Americans, uh, definitely the Abenaki. Yeah, I think Algonquin means the language group, but uh, they were part of the uh, Native Americans. So we had uh, we had uh, Native American trails, and we also had the Spicket River on the west side of the hill, uh, where the and the glacial cliffs is above that. And on the east side, there are brooks and there's swamps, wetlands, and ponds today, right down to the Merrimack, in a town in that city of, called Haverhill. It's in Massachusetts, and if the land has changed its um, elevation a little bit, uh, and the valleys um, have silted in, you know, and the swampy areas have silted in. And it were, were ponds at one time. I've seen that in my own time Derry, dairy, uh, where we used to be able to. Um, uh, there was a right down from my house, about a mile away. There was a, a pond. And in the last 50 years, it's silted in so badly, probably because of beaver dams and stuff like that, that it turned into uh, like weeds. And it's got just a narrow little channel through it now. They used to build a boat around the whole thing, you know, and that's only in 50 years. So thousands of years, you know, the earth has been rebounding from the glacial period. And we still have earthquakes in northeastern Massachusetts, pretty active. We talked about the Clinton Newbury fault line that runs from Newbury, Mass, down near the mouth of the Merrimack River. And it runs south of the Merrimack River down towards Worcester, Mass, which is about an hour west of Boston. And then it goes into Connecticut, right by the North Stonington uh, structures, the 8,000 structures. And so um, we have a, our hill is bisected by a, a very large fault, and it's part of that. It's like one of the uh, branches of the Clinton-Newbury Fault. And I talked to geologists. We just had one here on 9-11 when we were doing the uh, OSL dating. and he had a master's in that, and, and he was also a geophysicist. And I was talking about that crack through the whole hill, and I showed him pictures out by the cliff where it continues. So when the uh, glaciers were here, the, this area was pushed down probably a 1,000 feet during the last glacial maximum with maybe a mile of ice. And they say it was about 317,000 pounds per square foot. 2,200 pounds per per inch square inch of pressure being exerted downward, and so this area may have been pushed down and maybe up to a thousand feet. Once a glacier is left, that weight was no longer there, and has been rebounding like a sponge ever since. So a few thousand years ago, this area in the valleys may have not been silted in. Number one, and then the elevation of the land may have changed enough to shed the water out of these areas that uh-huh. somebody could have navigated up the Merrimack. Today, you can come up to about five miles from the bottom of our hill. 4,000 years ago, um, these maps that you mentioned, I sent you uh, some photographs of a gentleman that was a professor at Harvard University. And he was really, it wasn't his field, but he was very interested in water tables and the topography of this land and how it looked. He did a lot of work uh, on this. And he talked to people from the USGS constantly. I even took a trip up to Pembroke, New Hampshire, um, where there's the Vermont, New Hampshire uh, uh, it's the office for uh the USGS. And um, you know, uh they couldn't give us any precise you know, for certain years, you know, but they could give us general information. And so it looks like the hilltop was probably you go back in time, had more and more water around it to today where there's wetlands and small ponds and swamps were actually probably navigable. And it may have been you might have still had to have a portage coming up here, you know. But the area was the hilltop looks like it was almost a peninsula as you go back to about 4,000 years ago. And you go back earlier than that, it may have been more of an island, you know, when you go way back towards the end of the glacial period, roughly 12,000 years ago. And 12,500 years ago, this area was free of ice. The uh, the margin, the uh, edge of the ice was, I think, up near Concord, New Hampshire. I have a map showing that. That may may or may not be the latest information or accurate, but that's what I show. So if you've been here 12,000 years ago, the ice was already north of here, you know or even going back 12.5. So 4,000 years ago, probably, you know, it was more water around this hilltop, and um, bigger. You know, the rivers were deeper and wider. To the west of us, where the glacial cliff shelter is in the bigger River, it's a big valley there. So I can imagine right after the glaciers, that was just flowing with water and then very slowly going down over over time, you know, to what it is today.
1: Okay. <clears throat> yeah, that, uh, that's <clears throat> interesting. <clears throat> The uh, variety of maps looked uh, like the researcher uh, was meticulous. Um, It's just fascinating to see how water is kind of it be, been used as um, a, a ceremonial always had a ceremonial function for you know way back you know even before you know bapt- baptisms in the river jordan i and it's just been part of of uh, Oh, you, know, you know, the human uh, created you know r- ritual activities. Uh, it's really neat. But yeah uh a, a um, somewhat, related, somewhat related uh, uh question to question what question to what uh, asked. asked. Uh, the oral the debate, old world, please, a, place a, place lot, of a lot of emphasis on, on the February holiday holiday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, I'm starting to hear a little, bit of, a little bit of feedback, I think, right now. Y- but Yeah. The February yeah. I, I, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Hmm. I think the, uh, this tech issue isn't totally worked out yet. But any, <laughs> yeah, anyhow. That's,
3: that's uh good, though, for now, yeah.
1: Yeah, um, the you know the, the winter solstice is you know, a pretty uh, significant day in the calendar that the ancients set up at at your place. Um, you know, if we you know, maybe look at uh, you know some. The anthropological evidence um, could, you know, like the almost like a New Year's celebration has. Uh, if it's the same people who were uh, you know, coming from the old world to southeastern. Could uh, change your rituals ritual be an example, example? example. of you, 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 you're, 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 you're going to, to
2: make,
1: make some adapting you see you.
2: I, I think that's true. I mean I, I know like even Carthage, one of the prime Phoenician, you know, cities, um, it actually changed, you know, the, you know, the the Phoenician coast, you know, Syria, Jordan, Israel, um um Lebanon, you know, is the Phoenician coast and um it you know different cities there and, uh, and as they went west and set up 50 trading ports around the Mediterranean, because Carthage became one of the biggest ones, and some of the gods actually, like Ashtadi, changed, like became tanit I think, or vice versa. I'm really pretty tired today. We had a lot of stuff going on, but they uh, they changed the name of some of the gods, and some of their things changed a little bit in Carthage, you know, from where they came out of uh Tyre uh, or, or uh, you know, Beirut or, Biblos or any of those cities, uh, Palmyra, wherever the Phoenicians, you know, they came out of that area. They, They actually changed, you know. So maybe here, too, if they came, you know, Native Americans may have had a big hand in this, too, in this site. We just don't know, or maybe had little. But I would imagine they would have met whoever these people were that built this site and others throughout the Northeast. And they would have rubbed off on each other, some of the ideas, you know. And that would have changed them, too. And if these people were from overseas, obviously, even by themselves, they would have changed, you know, somewhat. But um, meeting other Native Americans, you know, people uh, will have an influence. You know, they might have intermarried, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of speculation. You know, unfortunately, we don't have all the details. But, um, you know, hopefully we can find out more about the site through new technologies, and then we can have a better idea of the time period or time periods you know, where these people came from, was our site related to other sites in the Northeast and maybe across North America. Uh, But, you know, and and then some things like the serpentine walls, they look so similar across the country. You know, are these people in contact with one another? Are those serpentine walls contemporary with the ones out here? Was it something that was built over a long time period and trade, you know, between groups, you know, this group traded with some People further west, and they traded with people further west, OAT to get out to the west coast, and some of the ideas would have been shared, you know. Or did people travel vast distances for trade and migration and bring those ideas? I mean, there's all these questions. I think the serpentine walls are fascinating because they're just, you know, they're in Alabama, they're in Indiana, they're out in Colorado, and Mount shaster a town called Wheat, California, has them. It's in the Chevron Patton walls and the, and the um, walls that go from Boulder to Boulder, zigzagging are there too. We have those here and they're in Connecticut and they're elsewhere. And then wall shaped like the letter D is in Connecticut. We have one at our site. I saw another site somewhere in New England and has that. And uh, they're in Colorado too, you know, along with the serpentine walls and some of the other features. It's just kind of puzzling at this stage And since mainstream seems to be either unaware or they not interested or they ridicule all these sites as coincidental and made by farmers you know two or three hundred years ago and and unfortunately some of these sites are being destroyed because of lack of recognition i place the blame because we're trying to save them but mainstream should be someday they'll be blamed for it rightfully so for the ones that say these things aren't worth saving and it's a distraction to real archaeology but i have questions just like you do mark you know uh these things built in a similar time period by the same people or are they built in different time periods by the same you know, generationally by the same descendants or whatever, or is it different people building them, you know? Dr. Winkler thought that there was a a Celtic period, and before that Native Americans were involved, I think, although there may have been some Europeans. And then earlier in time, it was an earlier group, you know, like the Phoenicians, according to him. And, you know, I'm sure that will raise a lot of ruckus, you know. But that was kind of what he said over stages one, two, and three, you know. So he comes up with three periods that our site was being used. and built, you know. But I think, of course, that will help to show that, you know. I mean, if we could do more of the structures too in the walls, boy, wouldn't that be something, you know? We have thousands and thousands of feet of walls. And um, if we could get out there and date these walls and even historic ones to separate them from perhaps the prehistoric ones. And then you get a place like North Stonington, Connecticut with 400 serpent walls. And they're using photogametry too. And I think I might've sent you a couple of images of the 3D photogametry. And you look at some of the walls and like, yeah, that's unmistakable. That's, that's definitely a serpent. You know, that is a serpent wall. The head, the twisting body and then the tail, you know, and it's just like, and it's all in 3D you know, on a computer, you can, you can manipulate it the way you want. You can look underneath it, above it. And you look at it and like, that is the craziest looking you know thing I've ever seen. it looks just like a snake, you know it isn't a farmer's wall, so you know that's not it's not a mistake. You may want to confuse a stone chamber with a root cellar you know you can try to do that, but a serpentine wall would serve no purpose for a for a farm or a farmer so.
1: right yeah you get I think tonight you know the more questions we've asked you know, we've Generated more questions. I think that's actually good. Yeah, you know, just you know, yeah, it g- you know, gives you maybe a new angle to you know, investigate. But um, yeah,
3: it's,
1: it, you know, I think yeah, uh, you know, I think that's just why you're. Property was property mystery hill mystery hill.
2: mystery hill yeah that's very appropriate yeah and the name of the hill is still mystery Hill for sure and it does raise a lot of questions other people that come up um, most of our visitors are you know open-minded enough to consider that the site may be ancient you know um <clears throat> you know say so don't have your brain mind too open your brain will fall or too close it will suffocate so you know something in the middle you know it's and most people are really respectful. And then once they start to see some of the features up there, like, yeah, this is not a farm. It doesn't look like a farm. It doesn't look like a shoe shop or a shoe factory or a cider press or a cider mill or a shoe, you know soap-making factory, you know, because they blame the table on being a cider press or a, a limestone for making soap, you know, 9,000-pound table with the oracle chamber and everything else around it. <clears throat> you start looking at the, you know, trapezoid shapes, the core billing, the carbon dating. You know, and that's the thing that gets me, uh, you know, all these different features that we have, all these pieces of evidence, you can actually see, touch, you can measure, you can come up, you know, and these sites around the Northeast and elsewhere are being ignored, you know, and ridiculed to somewhat, not as much as they used to be. But uh, there is a gentleman from Washington who was part of the... uh, National Register of Historic Places. He's retired and he's working with Mira and another gentleman right now, I think, about the uh, serpentine walls across the nation. Because where I mentioned about the serpentine walls, you can't confuse them with the farmers, you know, an agriculture wall. And I believe Barbara did a wonderful thing about the New England walls, something like 240,000 miles of walls. But uh, she did a wonderful job on that. And that's some people should see that video, and what she said about it it's really good, but these walls don't look like farmers' walls, you know they have slabs of stone in them that we call orthostats, they have niches made out of like lintled stone structures. We have the windows, some windows have louvers in them, stone louvers, and then you have the monoliths you know that are aligned astronomically. We've been told that our astronomical alignments are coincidental. Fifty one coincidences of these stones that were taken out the bedrock, shaped some of them many of them shaped like an arrowhead, if you will, you know, and then lined up and they work about eighteen hundred BC. That's that's a hell of a coincidence, you know. Yeah, and it's a pattern, not a
1: coincidence.
2: Wall. Yeah, it's a pattern, yeah. When you start to see patents it's not exactly. And then you got the patents of the serpentine walls, you know, and and then you have the window patents too that are a lot of them are in serpentine walls like the ones in the Berkshires and in Connecticut. And then they're in Pennsylvania. Yeah. I mean, it's like something that a farmer, because the guy that was up there was a shoemaker fifth generation and he had some domesticated animals. Where would they ever do anything like that in the world? So if the old, the old SL stuff comes back and says, Patty built this, you know, it's going to be a lot of explaining, no matter what it is, whatever the dates come back, if they're not contaminated, there still have to be a lot of explaining to do, you know, uh, Um, how the process was done, what it means, and, you know, and then how do we promote that, especially if it agrees with some of the carbon datings, you know, the really old carbon datings. So I think probably uh, sometime in late summer, around, you know, it was September 11th, so sometime, hopefully around that time period, we should start to see the results come back, you know. Um, And that will be a radio show probably, you know, depending on what you're out of it. (laughs) uh,
1: Just just let me know, we'll, Yeah, we'll schedule you for for that
2: one. Yeah, Yeah, we're on pins and needles waiting for the results right now, but it's gonna be a while. So, and the other sites in New England too. You know, it'll be so fascinating to see how the other. uh, I believe there are four other places tested. You know, I think it's it's pretty expensive. I think it was over twenty grand just spent on the testing. I think so. You know, um, and the price is coming down like anything. You know, technological, it will get a little bit a little bit less expensive, and and maybe more places can. And maybe there'll be funding, too. If if there's an interest, if these dates come back and show these sites were here in ancient times, maybe some universities or organizations will say, hey, look, uh, you know, this is really interesting data, you know, and it supports an ancient time period, not some colonial thing, you know. That's (laughs) what these people have been saying. Maybe it will. We don't know. I don't want to jump the gun on that. You
1: know, uh, know, know, we're down about eight minutes or so. And, you know, one (laughs) thing... I wanted to uh, uh, address as we wind up the show uh, was you know, when you were a guest with uh, Jeffrey Wilson uh, a couple of years ago, and he, he discussed the ceremonial sites uh, in Ohio that were built near the edge of a glacial ice sheet. Uh, for example, there's Fort Hill, uh, which is just north of the uh, Serpent Mounds. Um, many of the uh, Chillicothe Necropolises are uh, on, on uh, tectonic, tectonic plates T- 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 yep. inside a, uh, 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 a uh, Meteor, crater, Meteor crater, crater, crater and and uh, it, this one article of or this one book uh, Me- uh, Meadowcroft uh, does talk about the pre Pleistocene topography and drainage of the Appalachian Plateau was significantly different from. That seen today, topographic relief was lower and drainage flowed north and northwest to basins which lay, or, to basins which later would be occupied by the Great Lakes. The present Ohio River did not exist. Rather, two main river systems drained the plateau. The Taze Mahomet River flowed from the Piedmont area of Virginia to West Virginia and then northwest into central Ohio, Indiana, and in Illinois, etc. um but it, you know, so many of these uh ceremonial sites are built near some kind of uh unusual natural feature from millions of years ago. It's really really interesting Uh, that the the native uh, peoples and uh, people uh you know coming from Mexico to um, uh the place um, poverty points and uh, uh you know very possibly to your place it, they, they seem to gravitate towards building their ceremonial centers near these uh natural features. I think we lost that ability. For some reason, deep. What are some uh, is like the you know the Clinton Newberry fault line probably the a main reason why uh, the hill was chosen as a ceremonial activity versus you know, one you know, a hill uh, you know a couple miles down the road.
2: Yeah, I mean the water, the water bodies go by here. The two um, ancient um, Native American trails do, and yeah, the Clinton Newbury, one of the branches comes right through the hill. And I mentioned, I think we talked about some of the uh, about seven or eight hundred stone circles that are in Wales, going into England, how they're located on or within about a mile and a half of um, the um, of a fault line. And the ones in Scotland number about the same. I've been up there, but I and I've been to Wales too, but. I don't know if they're on fault lines, but it seems like that's true, you know, that they, these fault lines seem to be something that was attractive to these people. Um, and you're right, they could have chosen another hill around here. And astronomically, however, the hill is 365 feet above sea level. There are a couple of hills around here that are a little bit higher, and they have the uh, – if you look at our um, – a survey work that was done in the 70s, you know, in 80s too. They continued it after 77. We did more survey work, but the horizon around here is just a little bit higher, about a half a degree higher, because of these hills. And that might be one reason they chose the hill because astronomically, um, these hills have notches, you know, where they go up and down. It's kind of like the back of a serpent too. And those little dips in the in the little peaks were actually chosen um, to align the alignments with. or they worked. Actually, they worked nicely. And so like the summer solstice the sunrise, you know, it has kind of a notch top. You've done a whole um, story about the notches, you know, and I'm actually going to win some of the ones in Well, actually, because if you look at the horizon, and we opened it up in, I think, 73, we opened the summer solstice the sunrise, and the horizon has that notch, the same shape as a stone. So actually, they shape the stone to fit the notch. So you look at the stone as a foresight, and then you look in the distance, you'll see the sun rising on a notch, you know, four or five miles away, and they both fit together. And the sun rises 90 degrees to the slope of the stone and that notch. So he might have chose the hill because of the uh, astronomy. And I think probably that, you know, that fault line, because that seems to be something that attracted these people. And um, the hill was, you know, bare. The other hills probably were bare back then, too. And this is located right on both sides of water. So that may have been part of the attractions to the site. Because like I say, they could have built on the next hill over, Hog Hill or Providence Hill or Spicket Hill or something like that. But they chose this hill. And that's a great question too. But I think it might be because of those reasons astronomically. Uh, they had the water and also the fault line. Those other hills may or may not have a fault in them. You know, I'm not aware of any. I haven't heard about that. That would be kind of interesting <laughs> to find out too, you know. Because the fault would have been very easily to see without the soil, you know, on the hilltop, it would have been pretty bare, you know? Um, so those are great questions. And then Jeff has been to our site. So I remember that discussion we talked about the serpentine walls and where he said, do you think they're earlier or later, you know, because at the time he visited, we weren't aware of these serpentine walls and he's at the great serpent Mound, you know, so that was something I think he was kind of interested in, you know, um, mm-hmm. sort of in that way they are similar to the, uh, serpent, the Great Serpent Mount, except the ours are made out of stone, and those are made out of earth, although the foundation, I think, is stone at the Great Serpent Mount, if I'm not mistaken, has a stone foundation. But still, it's all really, really interesting. It could be Draco, you know, the constellation, and uh, so, yeah, Jeff's been to our place. He's will have to come back and check us out again, you know? Yeah, he... he, too. he, he <laughs> too.
1: Yeah, he, he's... Yeah, Jeff's a really good researcher. Okay, hey, hey yeah. uh, Dennis, we're down to uh, just under two minutes. Uh, do you want to okay. give out uh, mm-hmm. the website and a- anything about uh, Monday's ceremonies? And
2: yeah. Then we well, can wrap thank you up so the much. show. Thank you and Barbara for having me on. Again, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and thank the audience for listening. And, yeah, well, so we have a website. It's uh, StonehengeUSA.com. And they can either um, – on there is a phone number. And also our um, our email, which is info at StonehengeUSA.com. but USA dot com is our website. And on that, you can actually look at our 12 minute video that's in our theater. Our visitor center is closed, but we're still open right now. We're doing everything outdoors. Um, they also have a free app download. It's a uh, it has every uh, all the different structures on the main site and on the way up and back, so you can do a virtual tour. Of our site in your, you know, on your easy boy chair if you want, or couch at home, you can do a complete tour. And it can be used when you come to visit us too. You can actually take it. It will talk to you. It has pictures and text. That's on the on the website. And on Monday we'll be open for the sunset. And I guess the sunrise, although it's going to be cloudy, so that probably and that stone monolith has fallen, the one for the sunrise. So it's not as visual as like the summer solstice sunrise, you know, with the stone still standing. But the sunset will be there to watch that and uh, the 50th anniversary, and then we'll watch the Grand Conjunction. And if anybody wants to get a hold of us again, they can just go on the website, and you can get our phone or our email. And um, Mm -hmm. We're going to be on a travel channel show coming up, and we're in negotiations right now for a science channel. They're both part of the Discovery Network. That will be coming up, so we've got things going on like that. All
1: right. Mm -hmm. All right, we're just about out of time. Thank you, Dennis. (laughs) Uh, Merry Christmas. Good night, everybody.
2: You too.